You're listening to the Docs and More podcast with Lovejeet Daliwal. Joe Bullman is a documentary writer and director. His documentaries include The Crime Scene Cleaner and the award-winning The Man Who Bought Mystique. He also received a BAFTA nomination for Best Director for his documentary The Seven Sins of England. Welcome to the Docs and More podcast, Joe. Thanks very much. Really nice to be here. Thanks for asking me. What made you get involved in documentaries in the first place? So I grew up in a, in a you know, working class family on the edge of East London, in fact in Romford where uh, The Seven Sins of England was filmed. Went off to university, came out of university and I didn't really know what I was going to do but I ended up as a researcher on the BBC current affairs show Panorama and I was uh, very interested in the sort of journalistic side of things at that time. And uh, gradually, over time, as I did more and more investigations, first of all for the BBC and then for a a Channel 4 strand called Cutting Edge, I just got more and more interested in the filmmaking side of it and how you acted or manipulated the, the, the real world to tell the best story that you could. And gradually, I just got more and more focused on sort of documentary storytelling skills so I guess that was my journey. I'm fascinated by the Seven Sins of England film can you tell us a bit about the film? So it was shot I think I made it in around 2006 which was at a time when Tony Blair's government had become really uh, preoccupied by anti-social behaviour I don't know if you're old enough to remember all that stuff it seems incredible now that that was like a big political issue of the time you know, now we've moved on to sort of like, you know, now many working people have been driven into sort of like gig economy precarity and we have like a, a, a country that's more unequal than ancient Rome and we have the rise of populism. seems amazing that antisocial behaviour and binge drinking and hooliganism were an issue, but they really were. And I remember, you know, all these government representatives talking about ASBOs and how we were going to transition to a... Um, they kept calling it a European cafe culture. And I just looked at sort of, you know, the working class people I'd sort of grown up around and I just felt like they were hoping to transform something which had been part of the fabric of English culture for, I thought, at least a thousand years. And I started to look around and try to think about, what, you know, a, a ways in which I could make a film that sort of got to the got to the heart of that. So that was the inception of it. The film itself is is pretty creative in in how you actually make it because you you talk about these, you know, the seven sins, and you've managed to pick some incredible characters mm. who illustrate these seven sins. And let me just um, mention what they are. So you mentioned the binge drinking. There's also consumerism in there, hooliganism. Mm. Slaggishness, I think you called it. Yeah. Rudeness, violence, and bigotry. Those are the seven. They actually, I suppose, illustrate these sins in one way or another. Mm. And then they then turn to the camera and quote either bits of legislation or some very old bits of text from pamphlets written as far back as the 16th century. Mm. Where on earth did you get that idea from? I remember reading a passage, I remember reading a contemporary account of the Battle of Hastings, like that's a thousand years ago. And this, I guess you would now today call him an eyewitness. This person said, 
um, that essentially on the eve of the Battle of Hastings, the two armies had sort of assembled, they sort of gathered, congregated, and uh, they spent the night, you know, getting ready for the battle in the morning. And the, the Normans, the French, spent the night in quiet contemplation and prayer. Always remember that was the quote. Whereas the English had a party and all got bladdered and fought the Battle of Hastings the following morning with like these massive hangovers. And I remember hearing accounts where the, you know, much later on, you know, in the Middle Ages, where the French and English courts would come over and visit each other and have essentially social gatherings and the way the French spoke about the English women and the English pe and the English people in general as being you know loud and boisterous and drinking too much and never really um, following the rules of etiquette and it just felt like it was the oldest thing it was one of the really deep-seated enduring aspects of, of English culture which I felt um, was often being portrayed in a really negative way but also had these really positive I suppose aspects to it because it's always made it's part of what has made the English people um, what's the word uh, uh, given them their democratic spirit so I kind of thought well how on earth do I illustrate that and then I thought you know what these people that the government that Tony Blair's government are trying to bring under control somehow these people I grew up around them and what if I got some of those people to deliver passages that go back in you know in some cases as you say hundreds of years where people are complaining about our hooligan binge drinking chav culture as they used to call it back in the early 2000s but we subvert that a little bit and we give the voice to the ordinary working class people and that so that's what I tried to do. You obviously wanted specifically to focus on the working class and you, you say that you wanted to portray them in a more positive light. Do you think you achieved that with this film? I wouldn't say necessarily more positive. Mm. I would say that at the time people felt they could change the way English people are, that they could reform the culture in our country with some, with some rules about ASBOs, anti-social behaviour orders, and change and the changing of licensing laws and I just felt like the way English people are is much more deep-seated than that much more part of the sort of fabric of the way English history has unfolded and so that was the idea to to try and portray that so I don't I wouldn't say that a lot of the stuff we filmed was positive but I would say that there was this that this spirit of independence of do you know what who do you think you are talking to me like that this this idea that English people have always been a bit disrespectful it as as we went down researching the passages and looking into these histories of, of uh, anti-social behavior of the English you know down the centuries it also became apparent that there was a kind of a democratic spirit, an anti-authoritarian spirit. And you get from really very early on, I would say the 16th, 17th centuries, people coming from France and Italy and other countries and being really shocked at how independent and just cheeky and spirited the English working class are. And you, I think there's a quote in the film, actually, one of the characters says, you know, you know, he's a visitor from, I think, France in the 17th century. And he says, you know, that's why you have so many religious groups, dissenting religious groups in England, because 
they can say what they want and write pamphlets that in any other part of the world would wind them up in jail almost immediately. So I feel like, um, I felt at the time like trying to have a set of laws which checked that like big, deep strand in English culture was missing the point about the kind of people the English were. That's quite interesting though, isn't it? Because very often you, um, before the 60s and so forth, before that, Britain was very much seen as a very much a deferential culture. It had a, de- it had a deferential culture. I feel like that period of deep civility and deference and graciousness, if you actually go back and look at the history of the English, is an aberration. It's a period sort of roughly, I guess, from the late Victorian times to what, the 1950s? But go back beyond that, go back to the 18th, the 17th, the 16th centuries, and the English were more often portrayed as these sort of loutish, clever, spirited, but a bit out of control and a bit too addicted to drink people. So I felt like, yeah, I felt like that that idea of the the English gentleman and the plucky and trustworthy English working class person there's an, of course there's a big strand in our history for that but I felt like it was a bit of a, a bit of a historical aberration a bit of rewriting of history was it very difficult to find characters from your film I mean where where did you find them so I had three young researchers all brilliant Holly Moy who I think is now an established director Simon Smith who I think is a very established drama editor and Diggory or Ewing I, don't, I haven't seen Diggory for a while I don't know what happened to him um have to check in on him but basically what they did is they went to mostly to Romford on Friday and Saturday nights and, and Romford on a Friday and Saturday night at that time was one of our characters Craig who played the binge drinker he called it Ibiza gone wrong it was just chaos of you know it must have been about 20 nightclubs and thousands of Essex people that's a brilliant uh, description Ibiza yeah, gone wrong I love young it people like really reminded me a lot of um the Hogarth engraving, actually, uh, I don't know if you know that engraving, Gin Lane. So, and, and what they did really was just go to Romford on, on Friday and Saturday nights and just talk to people. And they would go up to them and say, listen, what we're doing, we're doing this film, it's called The Seven Sins of England. And what we're gonna do, we're gonna give people true original texts from our past, from our history, about binge drinking, chavs, hooligans, whatever the fashionable word was at the time. And then we're gonna give them to you, rehearse you up, train you up, so you can then deliver these passages, you know, on a Friday and Saturday night in Romford. And people, pretty extraordinary thing to say to someone, having a few drinks on a Friday night. And almost without exception, people said, uh, yeah, all right, all right, yeah, no problem. Can you get me on Big Brother? And that's it, they just said, yeah, they'd do it (laughs) there and then. And that's how it worked. But then what we did then, you know, probably a bit rude to say, most of the people that we ended up casting, we went through a very long casting process actually, were not well versed in, you know, English literature or like English history. So it was a bit of a challenge when we first presented them with the, with the texts, which I had spent many months accumulating from various sources. But actually we worked with them over many months and they got, really good at it so good at in the end that it was you know we'd be in these pubs nightclubs filming and some chaos would be kicking off some girl would start snogging one of our characters and it would be just bedlam and then they would turn to the camera and deliver some passage from the 16th or the 18th century about binge drinking or hooligans 
and it started to get difficult to tell the difference between the Romford vernacular and the historical text. And it was at that point I kind of thought, well, actually, yeah, we might have an interesting film on our hands. Yeah, I've got to say, I found that extraordinary. I mean, particularly uh, the binge drinker, because I remember a, a number of um, uh, situations, yeah, yeah, moments, yeah, where he's actually either shouting at somebody else or, or swearing at somebody else. It's totally lost in some, some other moment that's happening there. Police cars <laughs> flying past, sirens wailing. And then um, he goes back to talking about some... Yeah. 16th century verse or something and it's just it's just so amazing that yeah. he flips between the two and he can very easily tell he's extremely drunk as well at the same time it's i remember incredible. the the first night um so the first night is this the first night of filming was the scene when his name's craig and he we were in this nightclub in romford and these two girls that we'd never met just started the first time we saw them is that one of them plonked a drink next to him while he was trying to deliver one of his passages. And he said, cheers, love. And he sort of drank, knocked it back with them at the end of his passage. So we never met them before. And then they started snogging him, both of them. And we were like, oh, OK. And he, I remember Craig said to me, Joe, what should, what should I do? These girls, are, you know, they're snogging me. And I said, well, look, look, what you need to do is just, you know, if you want to have a snog, that's fine. That's up to you. But when you come up from a snog, I'll just give you a nod and you can go into whichever passage we were working on at that time. And that's how we shot the first evening with these girls. I'm so sorry, I don't remember their names. They were lovely girls. And these two girls like snogging Craig, our central character. And I remember, you know, we would have these really late nights and go on to like three, four in the morning. And uh, I remember walking home. So I lived in Romford at that time after that first night and thinking they're not they're not going to put this on the telly are they this is just too weird but we kept going with it and we kept encountering situations like this because we had put because we had decided to put our characters in real situations which was a big risk because we didn't know how that was going to turn out all sorts of logistical problems to do with the audio you know the loudness of the music and so on but I felt like that was going to be important. We didn't know what was going to happen, but actually when people had other things to worry about, you know, when a girl was like, you know, making it known that she wants to have a little snog or when there was some threat of violence or something, what our people did, who were all completely untrained, you know, they weren't actors, they, it took them away from focusing on their performance. So it felt like their performance just emerged out of the situation i felt we got a much more naturalistic like organic feel to the scenes by doing that so yeah that's that's how we sort of worked it i suppose this is very much a, a documentary maker's concern but you mentioned those girls there in the film mm. what about permissions were they happy to give permissions did you have to chase them up afterwards i mean oh, how did that all work yeah we always had to um we <laughs> we always had to um, pursue people the following day. And a lot of times, actually the women were quite a lot different from the men because you, on a Friday night, you'd meet these girls and they were incredibly brassy and, you know, abrasive and full of fun. And we'd take down their phone numbers and ring them, say the next day or the following Monday, and you'd get on the line and there'd be this very respectable even meek person on the other end of the line 
so it's very much it was a weird sort of situation because a lot of those things a lot of those situations you know in the clubs and the pubs and Romford you thought wow these people they're pretty intense but actually outside of a Friday and Saturday night they were just like everyone anyone else you know obviously they were but we always made really sure that people wanted to be in the film the biggest problem that we had with the casting actually was that we'd we needed to we got drama coaches to work with all of our characters over some months to get them to work on the passages and a lot of the young women would say that they wanted to do it and they'd turn up to these rehearsals for a week or two and then drop out some of them might you know I don't know you know I remember one girl got pregnant and that kept happening all the way up till filming so some of the women who ended up in the film only agreed to do it the week before whereas many of the men had been in these rehearsals for many months by that stage so that was a bit of a challenge now also after a lot of the performances of these characters to the mm. camera you had the interviews you spoke mm. to them as well yeah what were the reflections of the working class culture i mean did they ever change their minds about how they viewed themselves or i think when i look back on that to be honest it's a long time ago now and it's like quite hard talking about it because it was so long ago and i think about, i saw i watched the film for the first time uh, yesterday just in preparation for our chat and uh it's such a it felt it reminded me of a time which i enjoyed incredibly i really enjoyed getting to know all these people in fact when uh the one there's many strange moments but there's a moment when Craig the binge drinker has way too much to drink and he ends up sitting outside one of the nightclubs and confessing to some things about his life and I remember that I watched it yesterday and realized that if you had literally thrown a stone over his shoulder you would have hit the shop above which I had been born so I was making this film right in the heart of my own kind of upbringing and I'd gone away to university and become a you know a documentary director and done these other things and distanced myself really from from those people from that community but quite a long way and, and coming back was a really strange experience in many ways but when I looked again at the film I thought you know what this feels to me like really look at that it feels to me like the origins of Brexit. And that sounds strange, but I felt like there was a community of people, the people I'd grown up around, who felt disrespected, misunderstood, humiliated, told they were ignorant chavs, you know, constantly in all sorts of subtle and not so subtle ways. And when you do that to a group of people for long enough, when you don't take seriously what they're, they're gonna say because they're chavs and they're bigots and they're racists and they're binge drinkers, if you do that to long enough to, to a group of people, they're going to react. And I feel like in Brexit was many things. One of the things it was, was people who felt disrespected and excluded and humiliated hitting back in the political sphere and not just in nightclubs. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and in some ways I agree with you, actually, because the, I do, I, I think the working class have felt very ignored for a very long time. 
I don't know now, you know, because I'm not in touch with it, whether young people, young working class people still socialise like that. I suspect it's not quite the same thing now. I suspect that social media and, to be frank, drugs, different other drugs other than alcohol play a much bigger role. There was a, a certain defiance in a lot of what people had to say. And I do feel like that defiance is now at the heart of our political culture. That was an entertainment, a leisure culture. And I feel like that defiance is now at the heart of our political culture. And I think it's taken, you know, it's taken those of us who are now all part of the elite way too long to recognize that. And lip service was paid for way too long until it got too late, really. I think we've had, I think we're gonna go on a very long journey to pull back from that point of having a whole section of our community feeling completely excluded. When the film first came out, what yeah. was the reaction? People loved it. The people that were in it felt that they had somehow been represented. And I think some people were concerned about some of the behaviour that they saw, but I don't think anyone from, from Romford or communities like it saw it and thought this doesn't represent, this isn't a fair representation of the way young some young people are. I feel pretty happy with it because I think people really responded to it. I remember some of the characters. There's a guy called Gary who delivers some of the anti-immigrant stuff that goes back all the way to, I think they called it the Dutch libel that was posted onto a, a church in the city of London, I think in the 1600s. Gary, I remember, and Craig, the binge drinker, came along to the Sheffield Film Documentary Film Festival and got a standing ovation from this group of young sort of liberal filmmakers and we had a really good dialogue with the audience so yeah I think people reacted well the thing I'm I'm happiest about is that I feel like most of these tracks these acts of parliament these very disapproving passages that we have managed to dredge up from the historical records were written by people from obviously from the upper classes who were disapproving of, of the behaviour they were witnessing. And what we did was to give that language to our Romford people and let them own it so that it took on a totally different, like I say, a much more defiant tone. I liked that and I liked the fact that in a documentary, I, I think we'd been able to get a performative element in. We'd got ordinary people to play versions of themselves, which, you know, I had felt for a long time you know that when you're a filmmaker you have to have a story you have to have a vision I didn't have a lot of time I remember at the time for those kind of non-interventionist theories of documentary filmmaking that you're there just as a passive observer I don't think that's true I don't think that's an honest way to talk about filmmaking because selection and deselection are at the heart of any storyteller's job so I felt like increasingly I felt like I wanted to tell I guess deeper and richer stories that needed more and more is manipulation the right word but they needed me to act on the real world in more and more like complicated ways and getting people to perform versions of themselves felt like a good way to go I didn't know if it would work but I in the end I felt happy that I felt like I'd given a group of people a voice and made a good film now, one of the characters, Craig, uh, mm. he mentions that one part of the film that he's going to have a CAT scan, mm. I think he calls it, because yeah. I, th I think he believed that it's, uh, he'd been brain damaged because of the, as a result of 
getting yeah. drunk and getting into fights and I haven't spoken to him for a number of years but for many years after that he continued to be in sort of rude good health whatever had happened to him medically we never went into it in great detail hadn't wasn't as serious as he as he had first feared but I felt like he, Craig was a, a person who was a, at the point of maturing he lived this you know it was a violent heavy heavy drinking lifestyle and I think we just hit him at the at the sort of zenith of that when he was starting to think actually is this the way I want to spend my life you know I don't know, I forget how old he was but he was clearly you know he wasn't 16 he wasn't 18 anymore and he was starting to think about where his life was going now you've also moved on into drama are you still making documentaries yeah I um made one completed one earlier earlier this year which was called the banker's fortress or channel four called it they retitled it on the day and it was called something like banker's boom and bust i always forget the alliteration but what we did we went to a an office complex in the city of london called broadgate it's right next to liverpool street station it's the property alone is worth six billion pounds i believe and uh we filmed there for more than a year with everyone that works there so the bankers, the CEO of British Land, who are the developers and the owners, uh, the cleaners, the security guards. And it felt like we had, were filming in the, at the hub of an empire, this great financial empire that the city of London is, that was sucking in people from all over the world. And Mrs. Thatcher had laid the foundations for this office complex. And so we turned it really in, in, in the sort of mid-1980s, we turned it really into, I hope, a sort of history of financialized capitalism told through the eyes and ears of these people that clean the offices and guard them and work in the banks and uh, run the development. So, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, the dramas I've done so far have, have been factual dramas and they've been based very much on sort of deep research into real world events and I want to go on doing those I've got another one planned hopefully will happen after the after the lockdown but I'd really like to go on making documentaries because I just feel like stories are sort of falling from the trees right now I think we are living in a very extraordinary time like I said at the beginning of the interview I think there's been some academic research recently which shows that Britain and the US and now as unequal as ancient Rome. And I think that's throwing up stories that at the moment aren't making it into our documentary films and into our drama films. And I think that's a failing. And I, you know, I for one would like to try and be one of those people that helps set that right, get some of those stories onto our screens. But it's about getting them commissioned, obviously, as we all know. Well, I wish you good luck with that, and I'm sure you will get them commissioned. I wouldn't bank on that, love, Jill. We'll have to see. <laughs> well, good luck with it all, and thanks very much for coming on Docs and More podcast. Thank you so much. Real pleasure to speak to you, and thank you for doing this podcast. You've been listening to the Docs and More podcast with Lovejeet Daliwal. If you enjoyed the show, review and subscribe to the series.